Today we come together to meditate and chant. Being the eighth day of the lunar cycle. <coughs> it's the coming towards the end of the summer, moving towards autumn. And the weather is still very conducive for practice, it can be indoors or outdoors, sitting or walking meditation, it can be very pleasant at this time of year. Whatever the external conditions in the monastery, the weather, the comings and goings of the lay community. The essence of the practice never really changes. We're always following the same exhortation that the Buddha gave to cultivate and put forth effort in the practice, and persistent effort, or continuous effort. A word that comes to mind is perseverance, to keep trying and be willing to keep trying in the practice. The etymological roots of the word perseverance and patience are similar. And just as in England, English, we have these words coming from the same roots. In Thailand, Lumpur Cha and many other teachers use the two qualities reflected in these words together. You have kanti or otton in Thai and then kwampian or wiriya or persistent effort, perseverance in the practice. They're two qualities that are essential for progress to be willing to keep summoning up fresh effort and being patient with the difficulties, the obstacles, the conditions, whether the internal mental conditions of our mind or the external conditions of the world around us. Another quality, Lumpur Cha, emphasized over and over again is contentment and fewness of wishes. A very skillful attitude to develop as a creating the groundwork for our meditation practice. You're learning to be at ease 
with the way things are, the conditions. Again, at ease with the way our own mind is, our particular character and karma, and to be at ease with the world around us, with other people, with the choice of requisites available to us, the place, the accommodation, the food, the weather, the medicinal requisites and so on. Over and over again, Lumpo Cha would emphasize to learn how to be content within the monastic form, the training rules, the ways of meditation, the practices that we do, and the material support we have. If you're consciously developing contentment and fewness of wishes, then your mind settles down easily in the practice of sitting and walking meditation. You won't be endlessly <coughs> dreaming about what you haven't got, wanting more, following craving that can never be satisfied. You won't always be looking over your shoulder at other monks, see what they've got and comparing with what you've got. Meditation becomes a much more refined activity if we can settle these more coarse issues that bother the mind. If we can develop a skillful attitude and sense of being at ease with the way things are within ourselves and with the world around us, then we can summon all our energy and patience for uprooting defilements and really working with our own minds on a deeper level. And in many areas it shouldn't be too hard to develop this sense of contentment and being at ease. Materially we're well supported. We have plenty of food and adequate accommodation, support when we're sick. In the community, everyone's keeping the Vinaya, following the Vinaya, so it's easy on that level. We don't have to be suspicious or fearful of the people around us. It's easy to get on with our meditation practice and not have to concern ourselves too much with the other people around because they're also keeping a good standard of practice, Vinaya. We have plenty of lay support, so the lay supporters are happy for us to be meditating and putting forth effort in our practice. So all the conditions are conducive. We can be at ease on that level. And we have to set aside some of those habits of mind that are always looking for more, different, better, doubting or wondering whether practice would be better elsewhere, using a different system, different technique, different place, different teacher. If you really want to go deeper into meditation, you have to set aside 
a lot of the doubts and the cravings that disturb the mind. Soon we'll be hosting Lumpoliam. It's always been a great example of one who learns to be at ease and content with whatever the conditions are. If you've ever lived with him, you'll know how frugal he can be, how he can be very content with whatever the situation is, uncomplaining, undemanding. That's something almost certainly was encouraged and gained from Lumpur Cha. And it's the flavor of disciples of Lumpur Cha, wherever you find them, that they have this sense of being patient, willing to practice with different situations, different conditions, whatever their own personality may be, whatever the situation they find themselves in. It's possibly one important factor why disciples of Ajahn Chah have spread the Dhamma around Thailand and then nowadays even around the world <clears throat> because they're willing to practice in different places, different situations and not be demanding, not demanding of the laity rather than demand that the laity treat them in a certain way or provide them with a certain amount of requisites. They learn to accept whatever comes their way and be at ease so that they can pursue the meditation and be uh, more concerned internally with the arising of greed, hatred and delusion and dealing with it internally rather than externally always looking for more or for better or for different things and situations. It's something you notice over and over again with those who have lived and trained in the Ajahn Chah tradition. Very adaptable, flexible, easy with the practice. And forest monks in general, in the Ajahn Man tradition, this is how we are taught. Part of it is originating from the Tudong Tudonga tradition. So sometimes we do set aside even the simplicity of the monastic environment and live even more simply in the forest, camping with some uncertainty about weather and food. Again, developing that sense of being content and at ease with the conditions rather than always complaining and seeking different, seeking more. Another aspect of this quality of developing contentment and fewness of wishes as a support for meditation, they apply it to our mind itself, to the they say to the moods and the mental states that we experience, to be one who is content and 
having fewness of wishes in terms of moods, not always seeking more mental stimulation in the sense of not always seeking more desirable sights, sounds, taste, smell, touch, not always seeking endless fantasies, daydreams, mental proliferation, learning to be more satisfied with a simple meditation object and really putting effort into developing the meditation object so that we become mindful and fully aware of the breath or of the body or in the contemplation of three characteristics. If you're spending your time meditating on the breath or contemplating impermanence or not self, you're not looking for a lot of different mental experiences, a lot of highs, a lot of interesting or special kinds of experiences. You have a more accepting attitude of just whatever comes up <coughs> and using that as a basis for contemplation. Less judgmental, less demanding or expect less expectations in our mental activity. That means, again, being patient with whatever our moods are, however we feel, high or low, excited, bored, happy or sad, frustrated or inspired, rather than always being dissatisfied with the mental activity that's going on, developing the patience and then the mindfulness and clear comprehension just to be aware and contemplate and see the impermanence of our mental states, not endlessly seeking more distraction, more stimulation, but just using whatever is arising into our consciousness as an object for contemplation. A fewness of wishes with the mind itself, being more accepting, more patient. Just as we practice that on the outside with material things in our situation as a monk or trainee, internally, mentally, the same. We can be, learn to be at ease and content with whatever our personal karma is whatever our mental habits, mental activities are. Developing a sense of contentment, not in the sense of indulging, but not seeking more and different, just working with what we've got. Obviously the more effort we put into developing mindfulness practice, mindfulness of our different meditation objects, the stronger, more continuous mindfulness becomes, the clearer this, the clarity, the clarity of clear comprehension, sampajanya becomes, then the more effective our contemplation will be. 
with all these different qualities supporting each other, the effort, the patience, the contentment, the mindfulness, and the reflectiveness of the mind working together, it puts the mind in a position where it can just know its own experience, <clears throat> the experience of the body, the experience of our mental states, feelings and memories, as they are, without wanting or grasping for more or for things to be different than they are. You could say this is the ultimate practice of the Brahma-viharas, where we have complete acceptance of ourselves as a human being, whatever our karma, our character traits, good and bad, have acceptance with kindness and compassion to ourselves. And as we develop that more strongly, then we can also develop it towards others. As Ajahn Chah used to say, when the mind is well trained in all these different qualities, then we don't have to seek a lot to gain insight and understanding that's liberating. We just turned our attention to a watch this body and mind, observe it the way it is from moment to moment through our day. And there everything becomes an object for contemplation when there's mindfulness, when there's an ease and a contentment, we can contemplate very well. We can contemplate the nature of the body, the sensations, the physical makeup of the body, the four elements, the reality of the body in that it's something that's unattractive, smelly, changing, degenerating all the time. And we can contemplate our mental activity, again, very effectively, noting how moods and reactions come and go according to the stimulation, pleasure and pain, the different streams of thought, the stories we tell in our own mind, the conversations we have, all the moods that come along with them. The more at ease we are within ourselves, the more we can just see all of this as arising and ceasing <coughs> different mental phenomena arising and ceasing, the unreliability of it all, our reactions and moods, the unreliability unreli of our memories how they can change, fool us, our perceptions, how they condition our experience of happiness and sadness, happiness and suffering, just based on perceptions. You know, I like this, this is good, I don't like that, that's bad. Applied to people or things or places, situations. You know, the more we practice, the more skilled we become at just contemplating our experience rather than always getting tangled up with it. Ajahn Charles said when you're doing this well it's just like when somebody you go out into the orchard with somebody to collect mangoes 
and your friend goes up the mango tree with a stick they start knocking the mangoes down to you all you have to do is stand there with a basket and catch the mangoes really you don't have to put much effort in at all and don't have to do much and it won't take long and you've got a basket full of mangoes you, when we train our mind in these different qualities the patience the perseverance the contentment and ease the mindfulness the reflectiveness of the mind when they're all supporting working together then it's fairly straightforward to contemplate even unpleasant mental states and moods unpleasant physical sensations or mental states they're just what they are different objects of mind that arise and cease whether pleasant or unpleasant they're just like mangoes being shaken down from the tree and we're just collecting them up and we can see them for what they are just a thought it's just that much rises and ceases just a mood just a feeling and more and more the mind trusts in its own insights and observations because you can see how it steady your mind becomes more steady and even in its experience less demanding less judgmental less suffering and worrying about all the things of the world and our lives that we tend to worry and suffer with we have less of that and the more mindfulness and wisdom we develop but the quality is is one of developing to that point where there's a sense of ease in the mind to just quietly contemplate what's going on rather than always reacting and getting caught up with our own moods and mental states it's just mangoes dropping from the tree into the basket obviously as you practice like that we we all have the periods when the mindfulness is strong and clear and we seem to understand the Dhamma and then the periods when it seems very weak and the mind goes back to confusion and doubt uncertainty about everything and that's where you fall back on these qualities of patience perseverance just to keep going be willing to keep working towards the goal of training the mind you know, with patience you get a spaciousness in the mind even if it's not peaceful you have that attitude of being willing to accept the way things are and keep working towards bringing up more mindfulness however difficult it seems so it gives a sense of space or ease to be with whatever's going on rather than fighting against it being upset by your own moods and experiences this is probably why the teachers keep emphasizing the practice of patience and perseverance Because if you keep doing that well you learn so much you can learn from your experience even the unpleasant experiences if you're willing to do that to have the patience bring up the patience <coughs> we're all starting from the same point we come into the 
monastery as patuginas, ones who are thick or heavy with defilement. That's why we started practicing. We noticed some of the suffering of life and our discontent, dissatisfaction. So we learned to meditate and maybe start to appreciate what the monastic lifestyle can offer us. As we train, we become more aware of our actions, our speech. We learn to keep the Vinaya, keep the precepts. And even if internally we're still not completely peaceful and clear, at least externally we become more stable and more committed to the practice. So they say you change from being a Pudhujana to a Kalyanachana. You're one who is a good friend to oneself and a good friend to others, keeping the precepts, developing the qualities of mindfulness and insight on a regular basis. So one becomes a support to others as well as oneself. Kalyana means like beautiful in a Dharma way. So like one's behavior is beautiful when one's keeping the precepts. Even when more unwholesome, unskillful mental states arise, one treats them beautifully in the sense correctly. One can see states of greed or anger for what they are. So even though one can't fully let go of them yet, one knows that's what one has to do. We have to let go of kilesa. So we become a kalyanajana. We can support others through the practice by being a good example, sharing our wisdom, just quietly getting on with our practice as an example for others. Eventually aiming to become arya jana, a noble one where the mind is actually devoted itself to the practice to the point where it's just seeing the nature of things, even though kilesas are still there, the mind knows kilesa is kilesa, and knows kilesa are not self. They're the cause of suffering, and they're to be abandoned. And the view of taking them all personally as a self is gone. Even the Sotapanna doesn't have that view anymore. They say the Sotapanna doesn't take everything personally. They still may have some greed and anger and delusion arising, but they're seeing those qualities as defilements that are impermanent, suffering, and without an owner. So there's that sense of not taking everything personally, not identifying with body and mind and the suffering of the body and mind is personally seeing it more as just Dhamma. This is the way it is. When you give in to an angry thought, you suffer. When you follow a doubt, uncertainty, you suffer. When you follow greed or lust, you suffer. That insight is, has become clear for the Aryachana. They know there's no point following defilement, it leads to suffering. They know the things of the world that defilements want and seek after are suffering. They're impermanent, they're suffering. 
you can't have the things of this world. You can't hold on, cling on to the world, because we all have to die, and the world is impermanent. The mind knows that, so there's no more doubt about it. Lumpur Cha sometimes talked about a more unusual concept of the Kotarabhu Pugala. It's like halfway between Patujana and the area. Talked about the practitioners develop this insight and sometimes it's very clear. The mindfulness is clear, the insight's clear, body and mind are seeingness, anicca dukkha anatta. But then the mind slips back. And sometimes the confusion returns, doubt returns. The Godrabhu Pugala is like a reflection of the Godrabhu Jitta. It's like just before the arising of Magapala, there's the Godrabhu Jitta. They translate it as change of lineage, which sounds a bit weird, but it's describing the change between Patujana and Arya. Numpocha used it as a description for seeing how, you know, in the course of practice, there's moments and periods of clear insight, but then the mind falls back, understands the task of practice, what's required, has some insight, but it's not sustained. Sometimes the insight's there, sometimes it's not. Like this person is standing with one foot on two on each side of a stream, one foot on the far side, one foot on the near side, and the Godrabhu Pugala. So sometimes they're across the stream and seem to be close to Nibbana and to letting go. But then they come back again, the foot on the near side of the stream, and they put their weight back on that, still stuck in the world, still giving in to thoughts of suffering and creating suffering in the mind, not fully yet fully free and not having clear insight into the emptiness of these mental states. So they have this feeling or experience of sort of rocking back and forth, going back and forth, one foot on one side of the stream, one foot on the other side. Sometimes clear, about to get liberated from the world, and back in the world. Very frustrating, tiring, but no choice until the insight is sustained. That's how it has to be. <coughs> Again, you have to fall back on perseverance, patience, effort. But at least if you have some taste of insight, a sense of complete detachment and dispassion sometimes comes up in your practice and in a deep sense of contentment, joy at letting go, the happiness of letting go, which gives you the insight and the enthusiasm to keep practicing even though it's not fully established. It's like you have a taste or a sense, this is the way to practice, this is what I must do, even though it's not fully sustained. It's not fully clear to the mind yet. The 
This is why we have to keep returning to the development of patience, perseverance, keep listening to Dhamma, putting effort into the sitting, the walking meditation, developing a sense of contentment with the requisites, the place, the people, our life situation, so that we can keep turning our attention inwards and deepening that practice, sustaining the mindfulness, deepening the insight. So I'll leave you with these uh, reflections tonight, and we can do some parita chanting.